0: Let freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring,
1: let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers.
0: Tommy is getting us started with his recording of Let Freedom Ring. Tom's a wizard with a guitar, a founding member of the rock group Rage Against the Machine, and part of the supergroup Prophets of Rage. You may also know him as the Night Watchman. And importantly, Tommy's a political activist who deploys his art and his energy on behalf of freedom fighters everywhere, from striking nurses and teachers to Black Lives Matter and veterans against war. He extends his hand to every organizer and peace and justice person who reaches out to him so thank you tommy for all you do welcome 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 our freedom seminar meets under a tree a vibrant space where we feel nourished and fully alive the ancient trees wide branches sheltering and embracing us and from our vantage point here in this stretch of gold and green the distant horizon seems both vast and entirely within our reach. Our meeting here draws inspiration and wisdom from the freedom schools created in Mississippi and throughout the South during the great uprisings of the 1950s and 60s. In those settings and in those free spaces, modern expressions of the centuries-old black freedom movement, a movement that's still going on, folks gathered to examine the circumstances of their lives, to name their political moment, and to think freely about a world that could be, or should be, but is not yet. We want to do much the same thing. We want to name our political moment. We want to ask ourselves, where are we on the clock of the universe? We want to wonder what's become of us and what could become of us. Freedom School participants generated their own questions. And what evolved over time was a curriculum of questions that worked to unlock the wisdom in the room to build agency and empowerment through authentically engaging the real issues people faced in their lives, including structural barriers and obstacles, leading to collective interrogation, collective inquiry, and then collective action. Our seminar is a classroom without walls, a porous and welcoming place where we meet everyone just as they are, in full. Bring along your experiences, your family and your neighborhood, your community, culture, and language, and bring along your network of friends as well, and associates. What the hell? Bring your complete company of ancestors. The whole ensemble isn't always visible to the naked eye. But make no mistake, if we pay close enough attention, we'll sense that the entire cast is indeed present, crowded together in our collective classroom, sharing a chair or simply hovering in the air. Welcome, one and all. This seminar, like classes everywhere, contains multitudes. One more thing. A seminar depends on the generosity of participation, and so I invite you to audit the class, this seminar, but please not as a passive observer. You can be a full member in any way you choose, simply by tuning in, or better, by diving in fully. Let's continue with a bit of wisdom or provocation from another artist, a poet this time, whose music words nourish and challenge us simultaneously. I'll start with Langston Hughes, but before I do, I want to read Introduction to Poetry by Billy Collins, where he offers some advice on the best way to experience poetry. This is Billy Collins. I ask them to take a poem and hold it to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving as the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Collins is reminding us that we don't need to beat poetry with a hose. We need to feel it. It's like like what we hear at the poetry slams constantly, the chant of the young people, listen to the poem. We'll open each gathering with a poem. Our common practice and our ritual announcement the seminar is now launching and in session, right here, right now. Keep in mind Billy Collins' injunction. Give yourself up to whatever poem we're reading. Breathe it in and breathe it out. And don't ask what it means, but consider rather how it means to you, what it awakens, the voyages it inspires and encourages. Never tie it to a chair, never beat it with a hose. Just read it aloud, meditate a moment, and then read it a second time. Like circle time or yoga in an elementary classroom, this is our call to attention, our moment of Zen. So here's Langston Hughes, words like freedom. There are words like freedom, sweet and wonderful to say. On my heartstrings, freedom sings all day, every day. There are words like liberty that almost make me cry. If you had known what I know, you would know why. Langston Hughes, Words Like Freedom. Now, before we get fully underway, let's continue to get our juices flowing, our brains engaged, and our emotions freed up with a second regular feature of the podcast, a free write. That is, putting words on the page, impromptu, unedited, spur of the moment. So pause the podcast for just a few minutes and write without taking your pen from the page, as it were, or your fingers from the keyboard. No stopping, no need for revising, no editing. Write about yourself in light of a maxim from the wondrous Hannah Arendt. Every human being, she said, is both free and fated, fated and free. So in what ways do you imagine yourself to be free? And in what ways are you fated or entangled or defined by larger impersonal and sometimes invisible or unacknowledged forces? So here again is the prompt. Write about yourself as both free and fated, fated and free. I'll be right here when you get back.
1: Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews and follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast.
0: Okay, here's the plan. You already know that we start each podcast with a poem and we follow the poem with a free write, our ritual and tradition. From there, we leap into one or another segment from our substantial syllabus. There are infinite possibilities, and while we won't get to each segment at every session, we'll hit them all in time, repeatedly, as we roll along. Here are a few of the seminar segments, recurring and occasional. Poetry, as I said, free writes, of course, and then language arts, Current events, guest speakers, history and geography, math and science, reports from the front row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, office hours, gold stars and demerits, assignments and homework. Okay, I'll try not to drive that image too deeply into the ground, but it is a big metaphor. And so, as a lifelong teacher myself, the seminar, especially when it meets under the tree, is one of my sweetest of all the sweet spots in life. So thank you so much for joining in. We have a special guest for this inaugural episode, part of our guest speaker series. I call it Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, A-A-A-A-H, pronounced variously as a question mark, an exclamation point, or a simple sigh, ah. It's where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about where we find ourselves on the clock of the universe and about what is to be done or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our most liberated and radical imaginations, and ask ourselves not just what's going on, but what we can do about it and how things might be otherwise. So welcome, Chesa Boudin. You were recently elected district attorney of San Francisco and not at all incidentally, you're also my youngest son. Chesa Boudin, welcome to Under the Tree. Great to
2: have you. Bill Ayers, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to have a conversation that is more of a conversation than a Q&A. Um, and I guess I want to start by asking you, you get interviewed a lot. What do people always ask you? What do they want to know?
2: I do get interviewed a lot these days, that is true. Uh, I suppose it depends on the, on the particulars of the interview. Sometimes it's you know, a really um, kind of narrow specific topic. Earlier today, I had an interview scheduled with the LA Times and they were doing a comparison between different counties across California and looking at our response to COVID, specifically our implementation of a couple of the emergency statewide orders that the Judicial Council and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court had put in place. So sometimes it's really narrow and specific like that. Um, And other times it's a a broader free ranging um, interview, um, you know, about my vision uh, for criminal justice reform, my personal experience growing up with incarcerated parents. It, it, you know, it does depend on the interview. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that, uh... We should we should tell people that you are the newly elected District Attorney of San Francisco, and that's why people want to know your policies and your, and your uh, vision and also what practical steps you're taking. So I think I'll steer away from that.
2: And I'll <laughs> that you... is that, that is I gotta just tell you, you'll get a kick out of this. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, uh, I it is usually where people start the interview with me being um, elected this past November, took office January 8th, um, so if, uh, a little over 100 days in now. Uh, I did an interview last night with a high schooler who is a reporter for the, uh, the University of Chicago Laboratory High School paper, The Midway, who, do do uh, my alma mater. Your alma mater, he, yeah. He, he, yes. And he wanted to know uh, what I thought was important for activists to think about and what sort of wow. uh, what the future of activism looked like. So it was a little bit of a different interview.
0: That is a a bit different but you know in a way you get interviewed so much and you spent a year campaigning for this office or so and you hear the same questions over and over don't you find yourself going on automatic pilot
2: try not to um i think it's a it's a fine line between being organic and honest and original um and responsive to the questions and also being really fluent in the conversations that you're having sometimes over and over again i uh i think of it a little bit like how I think about learning a foreign language. Um, and when I was learning Spanish, this is a bit of a digression, but when I was learning Spanish, um, I remember you know, the, 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 the parts of, of the Spanish language that were easiest and most comfortable for me in the beginning were the introductory greetings. Hello, how are you? My name is, I'm from mm-hmm. Chicago, I'm from San Francisco. Sure. And, and over time, you kind of build from there in your comfort level. And I think that the same thing is true when it comes to these media conversations. The more you do public speaking or answer journalist questions about a particular topic, the, the more precise and concise you get in getting your message across in a, in a, you know, in a particular forum and format.
0: Gotcha. Well, I like the kid who asked you about activism. I want to ask you a similar question, which is, how do you name this political moment? Where are we? Uh, in the on the clock of the universe, what's going on? What do you, how do you see this moment?
2: It's a great challenge to have any sort of historic perspective when you're in a moment of really an unprecedented moment of volatility and uh, and change. I mean, one of the things that makes this moment so volatile, whether you're looking at the stock market, whether you're looking at government policies, whether you're looking at um, educational, you know, uh, programming, whatever area. Of, of life you're looking at it is a very volatile moment and part of what that means is we don't really know where we are or where we're going um, and so it it is very difficult to have uh, historical perspective or to plan for the long term I'm, I'm in the process right now of trying to plan a budget and staffing needs for my office over the you know uh, over the course of the next several years that I'll be in office And it's virtually impossible to do that because we don't know what's going to happen to the city budget. We don't know what's going to happen to crime rates. Much more so than in a normal moment in history. Things are volatile and unpredictable. So uh, I hesitate to to answer that question directly because I think in some ways the volatility speaks for itself. We don't know where we are or where we're going.
0: Yeah, but I admire the fact that you uh, didn't mention Trump in your answer.
2: that was, I, try, that was, I try not to use his name if I can avoid it.
0: That was good restraint. But, but of course, you know, you're right that uh, it's hard to name a political moment. It's a volatile political moment. But in a certain way, isn't that always true? You know, you think you can predict the future and then boom, COVID-19 happens. Or you think you know what you're going to do next year and, and things get into a shambles. I, sometimes I think of it as the queer art of failure. You know, that when things are going along normally, you kind of have this illusion of predicting but when things get knocked off track it becomes uh, a whole new challenge to rethink to allow your imagination to grow and so on so that's I, fair I think you're I, right. yeah,
2: that's fair I, you could even say that what's what's normal and predictable is the is the unpredicted you know exactly That exactly. you can expect it, the unexpected
0: exactly and, and i think that when you start to think about uh, what you can predict, you're, you're, you're going to something very practical. Um, what about the budget? What about the hiring and so on? But there's another way to think about it, which is these big, big forces, like the fact that there's a, been a right-wing kind of uh, push inside the American political system, and there's some resistance. I'd be interested in your talking a little bit about that. You're in touch with both sides of the thing.
2: Both sides of which thing? The, what do you mean well, by that?
0: Well, what I mean is, you're you're in touch with activism. You've been an activist. Um, you're also now an elected official. In fact, I think yeah. maybe I'm wrong. Are you the 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 top criminal justice person in San Francisco?
2: They they call us the top cop or the uh, the, the chief law enforcement official. Uh, Gosh, I, yeah.
0: <laughs> you don't look like a cop. I don't know what it is. I mean, why is that? Well, you know.
2: Uh, I, I, I am not a uh, police officer, standardized training certified cop in that sense. I've never been to the police academy, never uh, served as law enforcement before. But as an as an elected sort of civilian law enforcement official, <clears throat> it's my job to make law enforcement policy. Now, I don't oversee in, in in most regards. I don't oversee the San Francisco Police Department. They're an independent body. The chief is appointed. Uh, by the mayor, and the, there's a police commission that oversees the department and, and makes policy. But I do decide what you know how we're going to handle each case that the police department brings us, and I do decide uh, in in conversation with the police chief and the police department uh, what to prioritize and what kinds of evidence we want them gathering and how we want them building cases and what sentences we're going to seek in cases. So it's it is known as the the chief law enforcement officer, and I do have regular conversations with. With all the various law enforcement actors in San Francisco and beyond, um, and we're we're in a moment where, luckily, crime has fallen dramatically across the country. Uh, Why forty percent? Why has it? Well, it depends what categories of crime you're looking at. Um, it, you know, in San Francisco, one of the areas that drove our crime rates, if you just look at just raw numbers, uh, one of the areas that drove our crime rates was uh, property crime. Auto burglaries and and commercial burglaries and thefts, crimes of opportunity, crimes that some would say are a reflection of unprecedented wealth inequality um, in San Francisco, uh, in the Bay Area and and, in this country. And right now, because of the shelter in place order since March 16th in, in San Francisco and across the Bay Area, not only is it harder for people to move around, uh, who, who would seek to commit these property crimes, but there's also far fewer opportunities. The stores that people go shopping in are closed. The tourists who, you know, uh, accidentally leave a, a valuable uh, laptop on the backseat of their car uh, when they go into a park or a, or a, a tourist site, a museum, uh, are not coming to San Francisco. So you just don't have the opportunity for many crimes of opportunity
0: yeah but don't you imagine with the kind of a miseration that's going to accompany the vast unemployment and so on that this could reverse itself on a dime
2: that's what we're trying to plan for we want to be yeah. ready if and if and when that happens we want to prevent it and one of the ways we prevent it of course is you know i think the traditional and in some ways short-sighted way that you you plan for and pre- prevent that is you know uh, beefing up your police force having a visible presence doing more patrols that kind of thing another way that i am urging Um, other local elected officials to pursue is through investing in community and investing in supporting people who are uh, unemployed, who are unhoused, who don't have access to health care, so that people aren't in a position where they have to commit crimes of desperation to survive. And it's been really frustrating, more so at the national level, for me to watch uh, as the federal government gives away literally trillions of dollars to the you know, to the ruling class, to the, to the, to the corporate uh, hedge fund, private equity groups, uh, you know, the folks who took huge risky bets mm-hmm. to make more money when things were good. And now that things are bad, they're the first to get paid out while other people who were working really hard as busboys or as gardeners or mm-hmm. as janitors are not only without a job, But there's no bailout. There's no support. And if they commit a crime to support their family, I'm going to be asked to put them in jail and seek a stiff punishment. And so it's frustrating to see that play out at the national level, at the state level, and in some some places in some ways at the local level. We're still trying very, very hard to get people who are unhoused off of our streets and into all the vacant hotel rooms in San Francisco. And it's been a huge fight locally. But we're safer
0: yeah, I saw some of that in the news. You got a lot of housing, you got a, un, a lot of unhoused people, but you don't make the match because capitalism doesn't let you make that match. I mean, it's crazy in a, in a lot of ways. But I also think, you know, you're in this position, um, and, and we're living in a time when, in some ways, punishment is what we always think of when somebody makes a mistake, makes an error, error in judgment, error in behavior, and so we immediately think punishment and when we think punishment we immediately think the cage so in some ways i think incarceration is like the last entitlement you're not entitled to a decent education or mental health services or housing or food or healthcare but you are entitled to go to jail and in a weird way that's you know all these social problems kind of get
2: congealed in your world that's right we're the we're the last stop on the train you know we we don't invest in uh, healthcare so so you know f- Mothers who are pregnant, um, you know, often um, don 't have access to to regular health care if, if you 're living in certain communities we don 't invest in education, so we know that our public school systems are failed and, and getting worse um, in almost intentionally almost as a matter of 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 national and state policy we don 't invest in in access to food, so we know that there are nutritional issues and 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 we don 't invest in getting rid of asbestos or lead paint from poor communities and housing projects and so we we don 't you know we we 're unwilling to Um, meaningfully take on the gun industry and and stop the mass production and distribution of guns into poor neighborhoods. And and you see this line of problems, and you can call it the school-to-prison pipeline, or you can call it any number of things, but regardless of whether we're talking about schools or mental health care or any of these other areas, the last stop is the criminal justice system. It's where society's inequities and inequalities and failings um, are dumped, and we are expected now, I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, Bill, we're expected to punish people when they transgress whatever the, the particular rules or laws are. I like to think about what I try to do as accountability rather than punishment. Sometimes, mm. sometimes there's overlap, sometimes punishment is part of accountability, but accountability is broader and it creates space for rehabilitation, it creates space for being accountable to the person or community that you've harmed, rather than myopically focusing on a retributive punishment, which is what the criminal justice system does well, and why it's a failed system.
0: Mm. That makes sense. Um, Even even talking about criminal justice reform sometimes feels like an oxymoron. I mean, you know, I I think you're the top law enforcement officer, but is there such a thing as this neutral thing called law enforcement or the rule of law. How do you think about
2: that? I've seen already just in my first 120 days or so in office that the system is set up to really efficiently enforce certain laws against certain categories of people. And that it makes it almost impossible to enforce other laws against other categories of people. So let me be a little more specific, and I'll I'll give a couple examples. I went to Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut, and sadly, on Yale's campus, it was not uncommon for laws to be broken, particularly laws around underage drinking, use of uh, recreational uh, but illegal drugs, um, and of course, sexual assault. At, at fraternity uh, parties and at other parties were were regular occurrences underage drinking and sexual assault were regular occurrences uh, and they are in fact in most college campuses. Yale has its own police department, but its police department almost never investigates that I'm aware of never heard and you know we get these email alerts when you're when you're a student or or you know about any n- new criminal activity you almost never that I can remember, never that I can remember got an email from the chief of the Yale Police Department saying, you know, we busted a party with underage drinking, or we found someone who was using roofies to, um, to date rape uh, sorority sisters or, uh, but what we did hear all the time was the Yale Police Department enforcing drug laws in mostly black or Latin neighborhoods on the other side of the city that had nothing to do with Yale. They weren't connected to Yale, or Yale's police department arguably had no business being there. And the criminal justice system was very well set up to take those cases and to secure felony convictions and often prison time in ways that wreaked havoc on these communities and perpetuated a cycle of poverty, of desperation, of addiction, of economic uh, lack of opportunity and inequality, while Yale students could essentially violate those same laws with impunity. We see that play out all across the country. Uh, We see it in San Francisco. We see it with big corporations. Uh, Just today, the um, Attorney General of California filed uh, a, a landmark lawsuit that was called Historic because it seeks to require that Uber and Lyft follow the law. Now, it is a major step. It is critically important that they not systematically misclassify their employees as independent contractors to save billions of dollars uh, to avoid paying into the state workers' compensation and unemployment insurance fund. Um, But why is it historic that we're enforcing the law against corporations? We do it every day against the little guy.
0: Right. Makes sense. I mean, it's funny, uh, this coronavirus moment, I mean, it's an illuminating moment in a lot of ways. But but you see things like the Chicago Public Schools announced with great fanfare, we're gonna put soap in the children's bathrooms. And you're like, what? There was no soap? You monsters, right? And right. again and again, so here we are, you know, it's a big deal to enforce the law.
2: It's frustrating and it is um, it is one of the things, you know, I try to find silver linings in this moment. It, it's, it's a moment of crisis, it's a moment um, of desperation for so many people. Um, and and you know we don't even know the full extent of it yet of course but uh people are dying every day and and some of them are people i'm close to that you're close to um you know we've gotten some sad news about yeah. extended extended family members who've passed um probably because of covid 19 just in the last couple of days it's a very very sad moment and so i'm focused as an optimist and i think you know to to be an activist you have to be an optimist to be Someone who's socially engaged, you have to be an optimist. You have to believe in the in the potential for making things better and for positive change. Um, so in this moment, I try to find silver linings and I try to create silver linings when I can't find them uh, out there in the world. And that means things like um, using this moment to really drill down on who's in jail and why and, and identify people who maybe shouldn't have been in jail in the first place. Uh, we found a woman in San Francisco County Jail on a misdemeanor with no criminal history, um, with some underlying mental health issues, who had a high-risk pregnancy. Why do we have a woman with a high-risk pregnancy in jail when she has no criminal history? It makes no sense. It, it, it shouldn't take COVID-19 to find that person and get them into a uh, prenatal care center where they can get the healthcare they and their baby needs. That's what public safety looks like. That's how we keep every member of our Uh, Community safe
0: Right Well, you you raise this question of people who shouldn't be in jail Or people who should get out Say a word about your other father, my co-padre, David Gilbert
2: So, as as you know When I was 14 months old My biological parents left me at a babysitter And they went off for the day To participate in an armored car robbery Um, They never came back to get me at the end of the day Because the robbery went terribly wrong even though they weren't personally armed or even at the scene of the robbery itself. Uh, the people who did the robbery were armed and a security guard was was killed. Um, and then later uh, that same day, two police officers were killed. My parents were both arrested. My mother ended up serving 22 years in prison. My father is still incarcerated now, having served 38 years. He's 75 years old, um, does not have a single disciplinary violation on his record in all 38 years in New York State prison and just this past week the person in the cell immediately next to his was evacuated from his prison with COVID-19. Oh my god. So we're we're looking at a category of person obviously for me it's very you know it's it's very personal and it's very close to home and and you know him well and um it it's um it's it's hard to have someone you love and care about be exposed to risk under any circumstances but when it's not necessary for any broader public purpose. I mean, the folks in my office who work for me come into court and they take a certain amount of risk every day um, because we're an essential government agency and I ask my staff to do that and that provides me with with some level of anxiety. Um, But we're an essential service keeping someone who's 75 years old, who has no history of discipline violations, who has underlying me- you know medical conditions, um, who presents zero risk to public safety, zero risk of recidivism in jail at a high cost to taxpayers yep. makes no sense. It serves no purpose. It-, it can't and never will undo the harm that the crime caused. And it's grossly disproportionate to the role that he played. So it's, it's emotionally and intellectually frustrating to watch someone I love and someone who I know to be a a, a profoundly good and kind and generous person um, exposed to such horrific and preventable uh, risk. Is there a chance he'll get out? Never say never. Uh, His minimum sentence is 75 years, so he'd have to live until the year 2056 to be eligible for parole.
0: That's not happening.
2: That's not happening. Uh, So the only path for him to get out would be if the governor took, you know, extraordinary clemency action and, and specifically commuted his sentence or a class of other um, inmate sentences. And, you know, I make this point in a forthcoming op ed that's going to be run in the L.A. Times um, this week. But if you look just just empirically, if you just let data inform your policy mm-hmm. and you look across the board at people who are over the age of 65 in prison, they have a recidivism rate of of less than four percent. Now, that rate drops even further if you look at people like my father who are over the age of 70, or if you look at people who've served like my father more than 10 years or more than 20 years. Governors across the states should be looking at the prison population, identifying people who are elderly, who have served substantial periods of time, and who have reentry plans, and they should be allowing them to re-enter society. That's actually going to make us safer. It's going to save lives.
0: Good point. Good point. Can you imagine a society without prison?
2: I can. It's, it's a long way away. I don't, I don't see us being, uh, being there in, you know, in a, in a, in a society that looks like the one we currently have. And I say that because we live in a society where there's so much violence, structural, institutional, physical, so much access to weapons, so much inequality, um, so much violence uh, that's, that's part of our culture on TV and in, in music videos and, um, you know, in, in, in police interactions with poor communities. And so that violence begets violence. And when we have violence and when we have a, a totally failed mental health system, it, it creates a recipe for having some small number of people who really are not safe to be released to the community under, under normal circumstances. But I think we can easily get to a place where jails and prisons are a fraction of their size today and where they look um, unrecognizable from their current mass incarceration, uh, crim- you know, prison industrial complex form.
0: But in a way, you just named the circumstances under which a a world without prisons would be possible. Inequities have to disappear, health care, you know, guarantees of housing, income and so on. Right. I mean, you just said it can't be done in this world, but with the structural violence and the institutional racism. But but maybe those are things we could also chip away at and transform. Uh,
2: That's that's how we make ourselves safer. You know, safety is not just about property crime. It's not just about your laptop being safe on your, you know, on the back seat of your car, when you're a tourist in San Francisco, that's important. But it's also important that people who are unhoused not, you know, not live in fear of getting sexually assaulted in their tents and that, um, you know, people who are black and brown not live in fear of getting stopped by police and getting shot. And that, um, you know, people who have worked their whole lives not live in fear of dying on the streets because Uber and Lyft refused to pay into the state unemployment fund.
0: You know, I've taken so much of your time. I want to ask you a couple quick questions, if it's okay to finish up. Sure, of
2: course. You you, you've given me a lot of time over the years too.
0: I appreciate (laughs) that. Um, I didn't think you noticed. Just kidding. Um, What are you a nerd about? A nerd
2: about a lot (laughs) about uh, about a lot of things. As as you'll remember well from when I was in high school, I used to love biology, and this is you know sort of pre Google. I would I would memorize all kinds of facts and. Uh, I still like to nerd out, you know, especially on criminal justice, uh, statistics and data. It's, it's really important to me that the decisions we make and that the policies we implement be informed by and driven by and responsive to data as much as possible. And it sounds obvious. It sounds like an easy thing, but the reality is most criminal justice policies today and, 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 throughout American history, have not been driven by data. They've been driven by fear and and by extreme outlier cases. You know, probably the most famous example is Willie Horton. But um, pretty much every draconian, punitive law that makes up the, the infrastructure of mass incarceration was a response to a particular heinous crime. Not to data, not to the median or the norm or the average or to what was uh you know tested uh over time to actually reduce crime or keep us safe and so and this is a point that a, that a friend of mine uh author of a of a recent book called usual cruelty makes in his book his name is Alec Karkatsanis but he says you know when reformers people like me when reformers are trying to do something new um to implement uh strategies aimed at decarceration or restorative justice or um decriminalization of drugs or decriminalization of sex work, critics always say, well, does it work? And they always point to the one example where you let somebody out of jail without money bail and they went and committed a heinous crime. And look, recidivism is a reality. Two thirds of people coming home from state prison will be back in prison within a couple of years. Nobody has ever said, does it work to mass incarceration? No policymaker has ever said, Well, where's the data that shows that prison is an effective response to drug addiction? Nobody's ever done that test or run those numbers. So I'm a nerd about saying, let's look at what we're doing, how we're responding to what we define as deviant behavior and make sure that what we're doing has some rational, empirical support at one of three critical things that that are always my goals as a policymaker, as an elected official – in the criminal justice space. One, does it reduce or prevent crime going forward? Two, does it heal or restore the person or people who were harmed by this particular crime? And three, does it rehabilitate the individual that we believe committed the crime in a way that allows them to safely and successfully reintegrate uh, into their community? And if it's not doing any of those things, and there's very good evidence that jail does not do any of those things in many cases, then why are we doing it? And why are we doing it as a first and primary response to uh, so many different kinds of social problems, mental illness, addiction, poverty, um, you know, as well as uh, the, the full range of criminal activity that we prosecute.
0: That's a pretty good thing to be a nerd about. You know, you told the story, you mentioned earlier, and you've told the story many times about your biological parents going to prison when you were 14 months old and that's the moment at which you landed in our family became our third son um and we raised you from 14 months on and lucky us and lucky you I
2: mean, we were all... <laughs> very well very lucky me for sure
0: <laughs> uh, you, you had to put up, you
2: had to put up with about 10 years of torture before you could start to well, feel lucky but
0: i don't know about that but but what I wanted to ask you is, is uh, if, if you could tell me the story of your birth, going back before 14 months. What is the story of your birth and how you got your name Chaza?
2: Of course, I know the story. I've told it. I'll tell it to you. Um, but with all things that go back to our first couple of years and, and probably even more than, than, than that, more recently than that, our memories are, are memories of memories. And here, what I'm recounting is the story as it's been told to me. Of course. Um, and, and that's become my own memory in many ways. And memory is funny that way. Um, the The story goes that, that, and as I understand what happened, uh, I was a breech birth. And that, that meant I didn't come out head first. I actually came out feet first. And my, my mother, Kathy, was determined to have a natural birth. She had wanted to do it at home. But because I was breached and refused to turn around, uh, natural birth was out of the question.
0: So you were very stubborn Uh, right then. I mean, home birth. Yeah,
2: I was very stubborn. Yes, a home birth was out of the question. I refused to cooperate. They (laughs) tried everything. I'm I'm sure they tried all kinds of hippie remedies and incense (laughs) and acupressure and massage and who knows what else. uh, And I would not turn around. So they had to do the birth in the hospital. But my mother still managed to do natural birth. I came out feet first. My father, David was watching the birth and said it looked as though I came dancing into the world. Mm. They didn't have a name picked for me, but they wanted something that channeled the energy and the and the magical moment of my natural foot-first birth, uh, of me coming dancing into the world. And they had a very dear friend from their prenatal class who was Kenyan and who happens to be the father of my lifelong best friend. And uh, because he was Kenyan, he spoke Swahili, and they, they were thinking about the Swahili language, and they were inspired to choose... Uh, my name, Chesa, which, as uh, as they named me, means dancing feet. Um, it, it comes from the Swahili verb, kucheza, which means to play or uh, sometimes to dance. Keep dancing, brother. It's great to talk to you, and thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you. All love all the time. Thank you. All love. Bye-bye.
0: Moving on, it's time for the segment we call Language Arts Vocabulary. And today, a mini lecture or a brief examination of the word itself freedom. I want to start by acknowledging these intense and crazy times we're living through. A moment unlike any other, one that invites us to peer into the pandemic that's overtaking us and bring into the light some of the many, many contradictions that this virus illuminates. We see, for example, that health care as an industry is a catastrophe for most people, that good health and maximum profit can never mix. We see cities announcing with fanfare the suspension of water shutoffs, revealing that denying water to poor people was business as usual just a minute ago. We see that in Oakland and Chicago and other places, the number of vacant apartments matches pretty closely the number of unhoused human beings, but the two can't be reconciled because the almighty market won't allow it. Where's the profit for the landlord? We see workers who are demonized as illegal, suddenly recast as essential, and yet simultaneously disposable. We see food being destroyed on farms and in warehouses and processing centers, while hunger rises everywhere, because again, food in the logic of capital is not in the first place, a human need, but simply another business, profit is king, and value meaningless. There's so much more. The escalating death toll disproportionately impacting African Americans and brown people and the poor, something that is appalling and despicable, but not at all surprising if you're paying attention to the health gap and the death gap that's been with us forever. The underlying condition is white supremacy baked into our history and culture and our economic system of racial capitalism. It's there for all to see now, illuminated, undeniable. And when patriots and self-styled freedom lovers, sometimes armed, overwhelmingly white men, mobilize at state capitals, let there be no doubt they're there to assert their freedom to defend the underlying condition of racism, their freedom to condemn others to oppression disposability, and early death. The ruling class, the powerful, the wealthy, the 1% and its enablers in the political class, has an agenda, aggressively promoted in good times and bad, but pulled quickly from the back shelf in any crisis and rushed relentlessly front and center. Naomi Klein called this disaster capitalism, with every calamity, every fire, every hurricane Katrina or Maria, the powerful arrive in full force with briefcases stuffed with ready-made proposals, mobilized and poised to take advantage and promote their selfish interests, often in the name of freedom. So here we are, the privatization of public goods and services, massive transfers of wealth from the public to the private hands, the destruction of participatory democracy, and the erasure of the public, the suppression of voting, the reduction of education and health care and public safety to products, the intensification of white supremacy, and much, much more. We need to step up and wrestle with an alternative agenda. What is it that we're willing to fight for? Freedom Now was the call to arms of the Black Freedom Movement 50 years ago and the battle cry of every anti-colonial and anti-imperialist liberation struggle throughout the world in the 20th century. Those movements embraced demands for individual liberties, things like the right to vote, to access public goods and resources, to live and eat and sit and drink water where they wished, but always within a larger vision of collective freedom, freedom for a whole community, for an entire people. Similarly, women's liberation or gay liberation movements brought a self-defined public into being through the process of fighting oppression fighting discrimination, ill-treatment, or abuse faced by people on the basis of their membership in that particular group or community. Freedom and liberation meant resistance to exploitation and oppression, the possibility of becoming more fully realized human beings with agency and the social power to participate without restriction. But freedom is a wildly contested word, and it's widely and commonly used today to mean personal freedom or the right to do what you want, a far cry from the social meaning of freedom to those various liberation movements. Freedom is heralded by leaders of the gig economy and the new libertarian tech culture. Uber is freedom, or Facebook is freedom, as well as members of the ultra-right Freedom Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. In Boots Riley's dazzling film, Sorry to Bother You, a corporation called Worry-Free, promises customers free food and housing and freedom from the stress of paying bills in return for a lifetime work contract. Does that sound tempting? Think about it a minute. It's actually modern-day slavery, wearing the congenial mask of freedom and cleverly marketed to appeal to folks bathed in the blood of our pervasive consumer culture. Freedom, remember, was also the motto of the, motto of the Confederacy, organized traders willing to burn down the whole house in pursuit of a single freedom, their presumed right to own other human beings. And freedom is the cry of every carbon extractor, invader and occupier, and sweatshop operator today. Whenever and wherever freedom is abstractly and easily proclaimed, whether in school or in society, we do best to proceed as skeptics or agnostics. We'll explore later on the role of education, in a free and democratic society, which is necessarily concerned with the production of free people capable of developing minds of their own, even as they recognize the importance of learning to live together in association with others. A central goal of education in an authentic democracy is the creation of independent citizens, not subjects. In future podcasts, we'll examine how that lofty goal can be approached and perhaps achieved. Our last segment for today is Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, where we look at schools and education from the inside with our intrepid reporter, Light Eye Lee. She's a writer, an artist, an acute observer, and a mini ethnographer. She's 12 years old and in the sixth grade. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lighty.
1: Hi, Bill. How are you?
0: Good. How are you doing?
1: I'm pretty good.
0: I wanted to ask you uh, quickly about uh, distance learning. I wanted to find out what it's like to go to school on Zoom or online or whatever platform you use. How do you do it? What do you do?
1: It's a, It can be disorganized at times. But my My kind of structure of the day is... I wake up, I check my email and see, and I pick through our school website to see what Zoom classes I have for that day. And then I write them down in a notebook. And some of the biggest mini hard attacks I've ever had are when I forgot that there's a Zoom class and I'm late. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I really panic when that happens. Why, why
0: do you panic? Why do you panic? What's so bad about being late?
1: Really, nothing. I'm just very. I try to be punctual to things, so it really it startles me when I all when I'm just relaxing and all of a sudden I remember that I'm supposed to be in class. But
0: but when you're in school, are you uptight about being late? When you're in regular school,
1: actually, not as much as I am during distance learning. Which I don't. I don't really understand why.
0: Strikes me as weird. Why do you think that is?
1: I don't know. At real at school in the school building, um I am a lot more relaxed about being late. Like hmm. I'll I'll hang out at the water fountain for a few minutes or something and won't worry about it.
0: That's curi- curious.
1: I get very worried when I am even a little bit late to a Zoom call.
0: Okay, my advice is to relax, but but I'm still also curious about what it's like not being next to your friends, not being I mean you're in sixth grade, right? Yeah. So you're beginning middle school. So you have right. you have three years of middle school and you're right at the beginning. And what is it like not seeing your friends?
1: It's hard. I mean, it's harder than I thought it would be. And it's hard that it's work to see them. I have what? to get a hold of all of them on Google, like on Gmail. And I have to, I have to like try to get them all to see hey, let's all have a call at 1.30, you know?
0: And does a it lot work, of work sometimes? Does it work sometimes? Sometimes
1: it works and it's nice, but it's also more work than it should be.
0: But of course, you're a kid who not only has access to the internet and you have a computer, but all of your friends do too. Imagine if you were in a situation where no one had a computer. That would be yes remotely. i have
1: imagined that before and i've imagined it because some of my friends don't have phones the uh-huh. friends of mine that do have phones i text and call all the time but it's a little more difficult to try to do it just off of the computer
0: uh-huh. well not without naming names give me two of the kids you talk to the most give me one give me two names not names don't name them but just give me two kids who you talk to all the time
1: uh my best friend and my boyfriend
0: Oh, you have a boyfriend? Tell me about that. Um Wait, don't pause. I want to hear this story
1: um, okay. when did you when did
0: you get a boyfriend when
1: uh during quarantine really yeah,
0: that must be awkward how do you How do you conduct a relationship during quarantine?
1: It wasn't great. We haven't actually gotten to like see a movie or anything, but um. We were friends for four years, and uh-huh.
0: starting in what grade?
1: Well, I met him in fourth. Okay, he was friends with one of my friends when I met him. So. Yeah,
0: and, and um, how did how did you discover you were boyfriend and girlfriend?
1: Um. Well, I I made the mistake of telling a girl in my class that I liked him. Right. And then she, she was like, I'm going to tell him you like him and I'll get you a boyfriend. And I was like, absolutely not. So I texted him, you know, she's going to tell you I like you. And he said, I like you too. So during quarantine, we were FaceTiming and he asked me out by holding up a post-it note that said, do you want to date?
0: <laughs> so you're now it officially. It was pretty
1: awkward, but. Uh,
0: I guess, but now you're officially dating, but without actually being able to date yeah wow that must be that must be um i don't know what longing tempting um do you kind of wait for the time when you'll finally be able to be off quarantine
1: yeah i yeah i do
0: and what what, how long do you think it's going to be
1: that's kind of what i find most scary about this is that it's just unknown
0: so you're 12 years now maybe you'll go to your first movie when you're 20.
1: That is a scary possibility, yes.
0: <laughs> okay, well, listen, I, I, I really want to know more about distance learning, but I think we should call it quits on this segment. So I want to appreciate your being the middle school reporter for me. And thanks for being in this segment. And we'll talk again soon.
1: Okay.
0: Bye. Bye. Before we say farewell, I have an assignment for you to do by the time we meet again at our next seminar. Consider this your homework, something that might provoke you to write or draw or enact or sketch or dramatize or simply move inside yourself and meditate on. What is freedom after all? What are its central and necessary features? What distinctions can you draw between personal freedom and social or political freedom? Big thanks to my comrades from Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise, and to my workmate in arms, Malika Alim, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence.
1: Our music is by Tommy Morello. Our artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Ryan's a comic illustrator based in Portland. You can check out his work at ohyesverynice.com.
0: Thanks for being here with joy in my heart and freedom under my mind. Until next time.